Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Jimenez here. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. So glad that you guys are tuning in. Now, this is the first time that you've been listening to the podcast. Welcome to our show. This is a place where we dive into scripture. We study it for all it's worth. We look at the context. We look at the history. We try to do our best to look at the, the original meaning and 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 just the, the, the pure meaning of what the author intended as best we can through the direction and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you have been with us for quite some time, thank you for your support. I want you guys to know, and I was recently uh, praying about this and thanking the Lord, just the testimonies that we have been hearing through this podcast around the world, the people who download it, the people who take our notes, the people who are now telling their friends and their churches. And so if you have been a supporter of this ministry through prayer and maybe through financial support, and if you've never given to this ministry, you want to continue to see this ministry spread all over the world to reach people, to equip people in God's word, you can go on our website, standstrongministries.org, click on donate, and you can give whatever God has laid in your heart to give. We appreciate that in advance. I want you guys to know that. But as I've been praying recently, it's just been really touching of the people that are growing in their faith through this podcast. And I just want you guys to know that's why we do this. I love God's word. I love what it has meant in my life, in my family's life. I love the the many, many, many people through the years. I mean, we've been doing this now. I've been in full-time ministry since 1998. So to hear of just people, no matter their ethnic background, no matter their nationality, no matter their language, no matter if they've been a new believer or they're a seeker or they've been a mature follower of Christ for 30 years, it's just amazing to see how God's word impacts people. And today, as we're looking at Acts chapter 7, today's title, Stephen's Defense of Christianity and Death. And Stephen is one of those guys, again, he's very brief in scripture, but man, even at a, as a young man and as a man who is a, a new believer, he was able to take the time that, that he had and just expound on the scriptures and do, and do such a brilliant job to the point where when Stephen is martyred, it causes a massive persecution we'll see later in Acts chapter 8, which, which as people are being spread out because of persecution, the gospel spreading as a result of it. So it's tragic to, to hear what happened to Stephen, but man, it's, it's so encouraging to see someone who was not willing to compromise and to back down. And I pray that that's an encouragement for you as, as it is an encouragement for me, because oftentimes we hear people make excuses. Well, I can't do that. I, I, I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I don't know what to say. Or man, they're very intimidating to me. And, I, I'm, I, and you kind of feel bullied. Or if you've been a Christian for many years, but you've been very quiet, very silent, you haven't really shared your faith with anybody in school and maybe in your work, or, or maybe you have a, a, a spouse or, or a family member and, and they're not a believer and you're intimidated by them and you're a bit overwhelmed, I pray, my friends, as we dive into Acts chapter 7, that you will be inspired by Stephen. I have certainly been inspired by him. I pray you will be as well. So let's dive right in. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Acts chapter 7, beginning in verses 1 through 8. Now, just to bring up to speed, remember, in Acts chapter 6, Stephen and six other men have been called to meet the needs locally. 
And now we see he's been brought before the Sanhedrin. And here the high priest in verse one, that's Caiaphas, says to him, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So there's a lot that we see here right off the bat when it comes to what Stephen is, is, is addressing. Now we have to understand, remember, Stephen is a new guy on the scene. He's not one of the apostles. He's a deacon. He's a new believer within probably a few years tops. We don't know how he came to Christ, but he addresses the Hellenistic Jews and the Sanhedrin. And it's interesting because remember Hellenistic Jews were Greek speaking Jews. And it's interesting how he was also where, how they interpreted and looked at the Jewish scriptures, remember in Greek, from Hebrew to Greek. And what's also interesting that we see right off the bat, again, in in an apologetic sense, learning about giving a defense for Christianity, Stephen does such a brilliant job because he's pleading his case by using the law. That's this foundation, not through his own uniqueness and arguments, but he's using the law to show how God's presence is not limited to the temple only. This is very significant. This is the foundational approach that he takes in his fundamental point throughout his entire uh, vindication of Christianity in this presentation before the Sanhedrin, they are limiting God to the temple. So anything that was not sanctioned by them, approved by the Sanhedrin, is not of God. And Stephen's going to refute that. And his defense before this, the, the Sanhedrin is also interesting. Is It's not an acquittal. He's not using this as a defense by using the law to try to quit him so he could be freed. He's giving a Christian defense. This is the first one that we see that's articulated outside of what we saw Peter give on the day of Pentecost. But this is a little bit different because he's being in, he's in front of accusers where Peter in the day of Pentecost is he's trying to persuade people. And here we have Stephen giving a defense. He's giving a defense of Jesus who came into the world to set people free from their sins because Jesus is God. Now, you might be wondering... How did Luke, who's the writer of the book of Acts, know about this account? Well, I believe he got his account later on in life because Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul the Apostle, was there present. So he heard everything that Stephen gave. And I believe that this was also of God because I believe Stephen, again, a very limited character. We don't know much about him outside of Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7. But I believe that he impacted Saul of Tarsus on a major way. The other thing that's interesting that what Stephen does, notice he opens up by referring to him as brothers and fathers. That shows great respect. Stephen doesn't directly refute his, uh, his, his accusers. He doesn't look at these accusations that have been brought against him and, uh, and go on the defense. 
Instead, he appeals to his audience with respect, and he begins with Abraham to establish common ground with his accusers. That's so important. Not only that, but he refers to God as the God of glory. This is a reference and belief that identifies that God has truly manifested himself in creation. He is the creator. Not only has he created the heavens and the earth, because remember, Jewish people are not deistic and neither are Christians. We're theistic, that God created and he sustains the universe and he manifests himself personally. You see this in Exodus 24 and Exodus chapter 40 and 1 Kings chapter 8 verses 10 through 11 and 1 Samuel chapter 4 21 and 22, and there's so many other passages. But that's a point that Stephen wants to make is that God has revealed himself. And one way he says is he spoke to Abraham. Now, remember, Abraham was in Mesopotamia. His name was Abram, and he was living in Ur in Genesis chapter 11, verses 31 to chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 15, verse 7. And God expanded Abram's call to go into Haran. And then it says here in verse four, when Stephen said, then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans. This is the Southern part of Babylonia to live in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So Stephen is only giving highlights of extensive matters of history and genealogy. Now this phrase that Stephen gives in this highlight after his father died, although Abraham is mentioned first in the line of Terah, it doesn't imply that he was the elder sibling of Nahar in Haran in Genesis 11, verse 26. Moreover, not much explanation is given for why Abraham lived in Haran until his father died. So we don't know all the details. And Stephen, again, that's not the purpose of him to get into the historicity of that, but just to mention it. And then when he says in verse five, that yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length. So Abraham showed great faith because it wasn't like God says, hey, if you go, I'm going to bless you and give you all these things. He went in faith because he cared more about his future descendants than he did of his own worldly wealth. Guess what? Hebrews 11, 8 through 19 talks about that very thing. The writer of Hebrews identifies the faith and the obedience, which is why I highlight the life of Abraham's righteousness, because it was accounted to him for righteousness, we're told in, in Romans chapter 3 and later in chapter 4 in Galatians 3. So here in verse 6, it says, And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others. So here Stephen is quoting from Exodus 3 verse 12, and he gives a round number about 400 years that they'll be afflicted. Abraham's descendants, they would endure much affliction before reaping the benefits as God's chosen people. Now, it's easy for us to look back and think, oh, four plus hundred years and kind of move on. But you look at our short period of history, less than 300 years here in America, if you're, if you're an American listening to this podcast, and you can see already within less than 300 years how corruption has already come in and how people attack the Constitution. That's the longest lasting Constitution any country in any point of history has ever witnessed. And yet you can see kind of how it's crumbling or, or people who've been oppressed for many years or for decades or for centuries. Well, Abram knew as he went in obedience that his people will suffer a great deal until they receive the blessing. And sometimes we're not willing to receive the blessing because we have to go through suffering. But God says, you trust me that you'll go through the suffering and your blessing will be far greater than you can ever imagine. Now, one of the things that identify this covenant that Abraham had with God is circumcision. Now, if you know anything about this practice, circumcision is the removing of the male foreskin. This act was a ritual that symbolized Abraham and his descendants 
are in covenant with God and marked them distinctively and uniquely among other tribes. You see this in Genesis 17, 10 through 11. Now, Stephen mentions this aspect of the covenant with Abraham to point to the new covenant that the Jews can experience in faith in Christ. Paul would later expound on this in Colossians chapter 2. So make a mental note or you can write that down. You can see how Paul uh, addresses that. And he also deals that in the, in the letter to the Philippians. And you can also see Romans chapter 4 verse 3. So this is what Stephen's doing as he's giving a defense of Christianity. But he doesn't just stop there with, with Abraham. Now notice beginning in verse 9 through 16, he now talks about the rise of Joseph. And he's going to talk about the wisdom that we see with Joseph. And the patriarchs, in verse 9, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But then Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt. He sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit... Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and he and his fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver for the sons of Hamar and Shechem. So we'll stop there before I look at verse 7. Now, a couple things here that we see about the wisdom of, of Joseph. Notice, although Joseph's own family rejected him and sold him into slavery. So again, he is an, Abraham is his ancestor. And notice the affliction that Joseph has had to go through before he received the blessing. But yet God didn't abandon him because God keeps his promises. Hebrews chapter six, God would send a very unlikely person. How, what would God do to deliver Joseph from his situation, rejected by his family, sold into slavery. He would send a person, Pharaoh, to not only deliver Joseph, but his entire family. So Joseph is a picture, a foreshadowing of Jesus to come and to see the deliverance because Jesus is wisdom. And when you look at the story of Joseph, Stephen's making a point to the Sanhedrin, you see wisdom. Now God would use a famine, Stephen reminds the Sanhedrin, to bring Joseph's family and the Hebrew people to Egypt to protect them. Now, remember when they, when that phrase he says, and our fathers could find no food, meaning they were starving, they were dying. And it was lasting to the point where they were, they were not able to sustain themselves in the midst of this horrific famine. Now, when he says here in verse 12, but when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. So Stephen refers to the account in Genesis chapter 42 and then there was a second visit that Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Could you imagine every time I read that in the, in, in the book of Genesis, I, I can't imagine what they were experiencing, what they're going through. But what's interesting here is that Stephen, based on the Septuagint, he added the nine wives to make the number 75, meaning that we brought 75 people in total to be delivered out of the famine and into the care of Pharaoh. Both Judah and Simeon, remember, they were widowers. So this account is recorded throughout Genesis chapter 43 to chapter 47. And then it says in verse 15, And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and his fathers. Now, according to Joshua 24, verse 32, Jacob was buried near Hebron, and Joseph was buried in Shechem. Then 
we see in verse 17, number three, the deliverance of Moses, who's mighty in words and deeds. He goes from Abraham, that is Stephen, and he talks about what occurred with Joseph and about wisdom. And then he gets to, to the story of Moses. And notice what Stephen says here. He says, but as a time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came... <clears throat> into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Verse 30. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and a, bu and a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler or a judge? This man God sent as, a, as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led him out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship. And I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Verse 44, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So there's a lot there when it comes to the deliverance of Moses. So a couple of things. Notice that Stephen transitions now into the book of Exodus 
And what he does is he calls one of the darkest periods of the Hebrew people under the brutal Egyptian rule, as you see in the beginning of the book of Exodus in chapter one, beginning in verse eight, all the way to verse 22. Now, the Egyptians were threatened and they were jealous over the success of the Hebrew people. So by oppressing them, keeping them as slaves, kept them inferior to the Egyptians. And so much of the power that you see the Egyptians had was on the back of the Hebrew people. Now, Stephen sticks to the Old Testament description of Moses, his upbringing, and he doesn't lean on the fanciful ancient writings of his childhood mentioned by Josephus and Philo. Moses, we know, was a very well-educated and well uh, looked after by the Egyptian people and by God's providential hand, particularly you see that in Exodus chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. So Stephen sticks to the narrative that we know according to the Hebrew people and doesn't get sidetracked with a lot of things that are speculative. Now, one of the things that Stephen points uh, to when he's exploring the life of Moses is that at 40, Moses, he did show concern. Uh, why was 40? Not when it was 30. We don't know, but his, he was concerned for his people. So he knew his upbringing. And this whole time, Moses, I believe, was studied um, in the arts. He was studied in languages. He was studied in probably military things. He would never, of course, take over because he was not a legitimate uh, son that was, you know, worthy to be on the throne. But he definitely had royalty and he and God used the opportunity that he, he was given to study up and to understand not just the rise and power of the Egyptians, but his own people, the Hebrews. And so at some point, you know, he was probably so troubled by this that he intervenes and he tries to save a few individuals, but it doesn't work. It backfires on him. And the Hebrew people, they, they didn't see Moses. Remember, Joseph's brothers did not see him for what God called him to be. So they got rid of him and they, they sold him into slavery. And then he, out of slavery, he becomes a deliverer. And so even still, as they came to see Joseph because they were in a famine, he then exposed himself. He eventually reveals who he is and they accepted him as not just a deliverer, but as kin. Well, in this case, even though Moses is a Hebrew, he's raised by Egyptians, so he's a sellout. And they did not see Moses as one of them. They saw him as an Egyptian who betrayed the people. So he was not a deliverer to them. And of course, after killing the Egyptian, Moses fled because he was afraid that Pharaoh would think he turned into a Jewish rebel and he was attempting to free the Hebrew slaves. Now, this phrase here, father of two sons, Stephen points out the, in, the, the inner and ethnic marriages that Moses had, that not only was he raised and educated by the Egyptians, but he marries a non-Hebrew and has two boys, Gershom and Eleazar. Now it says here in verse 30 that when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai and a flame of fire in the bush. This is in Exodus chapter seven, verse seven. So God encounters Moses when he's 80 years old and he calls him to become the prophet and the deliverer that was meant to be for, Hebrew, for the Hebrew people. So not when he was 40, but when he's 80. See, so he's got a lot of energy a lot of power and God's like, nope, they're not going to receive you and I'm not going to use that. I'm going to use at the point when you have nothing and you're a lot older. Now notice when God is speaking to Moses, he says, you're on holy ground. And this is important because again, in context of why Stephen refers to this, the whole, remember the whole uh, argument that he's making against the Sanhedrin is you guys have limited God. 
your teachings don't support that, but your belief systems and your religiosity and your different sect groups of Pharisees and Sadducees does. Because you think that salvation only comes and God only blesses the people that are ordained and they're in leadership in the temple. That is not true. Wherever God goes, that place is holy, not just the temple because you guys say so. Stephen refused the religious leaders by pointing out holy sanctuaries outside the temple. In Acts chapter 6, verse 13, you can take a look at that. So God isn't limited to one location. God is not limited to one people group. So we have to bear that in mind and Stephen is making that point. Now the Hebrews rejected Moses and years later, the Israelites will reject Jesus. So these, there's a lot of, and I'm not going to get into it, but there's a lot of, of similarities between Moses and Jesus because Moses is a foreshadow or a, a typology of Jesus, the Messiah. You can see this in Deuteronomy chapter 18, 15 through 18. Moses, who was the prophet, who was the deliverer, is a foreshadowing of Jesus, who is the prophet and the deliverer. Now, this angel who spoke to him, this could have been the angel of the Lord who was assisted by a band of angels in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 3. And these living oracles, this phrase that he uses here, uh, possibly, I, I think more likely means that God was giving the law to Moses to implement it into the life of the Hebrew people. So even though some Hebrews knew some of the scriptures, if you will, that was taught, you know, what, what some of the, uh, the beliefs from Abraham um, and, and Isaac and Jacob, they didn't know anything outside of that. Because remember, it wouldn't be, it would be Moses later on who writes the Torah. So, so what he's doing is he, the things that he learned as an Egyptian, he's teaching um, and giving these oracles to his people, the Hebrew people that is. Now here it says in verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt and they tell Aaron, hey, well, let's make a golden calf in Exodus 32 verse 40. So after over 400 years of oppression and slavery, what does God do? He uses Abraham or excuse me, Moses, an unlikely person to free these people. Remember, he just used signs and wonders, the mighty words and deeds that Moses has spoken. And it's a, it's surprising that the people, they wanted to be guided back to Egypt and they wanted to use a false deity to be the one to protect them, to go back to slavery. They're going back to their own sin. If you will, the, the dog turning to returning to his own vomit. And when God turned away and gave them over to worship of the host of heaven, as is written in the book of prophets, did you bring me to be slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into the exile beyond Babylon. You see this in Amos chapter 5, verse 25 and 27. So God, he punished his people for turning to idols. Now, again, Stephen is referring to this because he's saying, this is what you guys have done. You guys are getting into a kind of classic things. You guys are worshiping a lot of the imagery, a lot of the signs, a lot of the stuff that you guys have situated in the temple. Remember, God punished them for turning to idols and seeking the stars for guidance. Their idol worship would last way into the Babylonian captivity. They would still take that worship into captivity. And God says, I will send you into the exile beyond Babylon. So remember, Amos at this time was prophesying of the borders of Assyria. And Stephen, he refers to the, extinct, the, the ex, extinction into Babylon during captivity, which is the, 
the judgment that was due to idolatry. That's why they were there because of idolatry. And you and I know at this time, look at the idolatry that Stephen is, is, is facing against. And so as he lays out the case with Abraham, as he lays out the case with Joseph and with Moses, notice now in verse 44, what takes place now where Stephen counters the false charges. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they uh, dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all of these things? So here you see that what Stephen does now in verse 44 is he refers to this portable temple that was in the wilderness that held the Ten Commandments according to Exodus chapter 25, 16 through 21, when he, when he was referring to the tent of witness in the wilderness. And then he says, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it wasn't until the days of David. So Stephen moves very quickly to summarize how the temple was built from David's blueprints to the construction under Solomon, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, 27 through 30. And Stephen's expression here uh, reveals his disapproval of how the practice of worship had been upheld in the temple. So if you go back to the idolatry that the, the Jewish people did then, he's accusing them of, of doing that to this day. And he says in verse 47, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. So, so what Stephen does when he refers to the most high speaking as the prophet says, heaven is my throne. He's citing Isaiah 66 verses one and two to show the prophecy that speaks to the moral and the spiritual failure of Israel. So now he's getting prophetic. That is Stephen in this phrase, heaven is my throne. Remember, God cannot be contained by human hands. I like what the expositors Bible commentary, the abridged edition says, quote, Stephen's main assertion is that neither the tabernacle nor the temple was intended to be such an institutionalized feature in Israel's region as to prohibit God's further redemptive activity or to halt the advance of God's plan for his people. The response Stephen wants from his hearers was that was what God declared as his desire for his people in Isaiah 66 verse 2b. This text follows the passage Stephen cites. This is the one I esteem who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. To those who desire to localize God's presence and confine his working, however, Stephen repeated the denunciation of Isaiah 66, 1 and 2a, leaving the appeal in Isaiah 66, 2b to be inferred, end quote. What that means is that he knew if you've rejected Jesus in his first coming, were you going to reject him in his second coming? Because when God came in the flesh, he revealed through miracles for, of what, what we saw with Abraham, what we saw with Joseph, what we saw with Moses. And yet still you guys reject him. And he's, he's looking at Isaiah chapter 66 and saying, God is not limited to your temple and to what you guys are doing. Because what you guys are doing, the actual fact, is idolatry. Which then leads us to the sixth point here now where Stephen, he rebukes. The council, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets do your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Wow. So after laying out Israel's history of rejecting God and his prophets, Stephen now turns his rebuke on the high priest and all the chief priests to point out how they continue to do the same as their forefathers. So the other thing that you identify that, that he's identifying with the Jewish leaders is you, you, you guys haven't learned through all the exile that our people have gone through because of idolatry, because of rejecting God's law for turning their back against him. You guys have still not learned. And even still, after God sends his only begotten son, you rejected, you guys had him killed on the cross. So Stephen's language, it's harsher than what Peter said in, you know, to the council in, in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. This phrase, stiff-necked people, Stephen started off addressing members of the people as brothers and fathers, and then he ends with calling them stiff-necked people. Is the same phrase or description as given to the Hebrews in the wilderness when they made the golden calf in Exodus 33, verse 5. So not only did he go back to that in history, but he mentions and he calls them by that same name, which would refer back to God rebuking the people for turning against him and building the golden calf. So this indictment of idol worship was 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 what Stephen was driving home because of how they not only mistreated the scriptures but how they had fixed their hearts towards greed and pride and they rejected the teachings of Jesus Christ. So he refers to him as uncircumcised in heart and ears. This phrase was used on the apostates. Leviticus 26 verse 40, Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, Jeremiah 4 verse 4. This was an indictment of false teachers. So not only does Stephen in the end indict them of idol worship, but then he also indicts them of being false teachers. So he throws everything out, what they're doing. He says, God does not approve. And he says, announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. He accentuates, that is Stephen, the fact that God came into the world to dwell among his people. And yet the Jewish leaders cared more about the holiness of the temple and them looking holy than ad identifying and worshiping Jesus as the Messiah. That's why we can't have it both ways, my friends. You cannot... Make God into what you want him to be. You can't compromise. You don't uh, negotiate with God what you think Christianity should be. And that's what Stephen is presenting to these people. And then, of course, as a result, in verse 54, number six here, the council then stones Stephen to death. Notice now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witness laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and falling to his knees. He cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold a sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, this phrase here that they were enraged, I mean, they were furious. 
So nothing Stephen said compelled the council. Remember, nothing Jesus said compelled them. Nothing Stephen says compelled them to repent of the sins. Nothing that Peter did in the healing of the layman outside the temple compelled them. Rather, they flogged them and threatened them that if you continue to use the name of Jesus, we'll kill you. And so now they get a hold of Stephen. So instead, they lashed out on Stephen and they murdered him as a result. This Fraser ground their teeth. The council, they attacked Stephen with utter hatred. That's what the depiction that Luke is uh, stating here. They had utter hatred for him because of what he stood for. And what he stood for was that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And he was a follower of Jesus Christ. And we're told in verse 55, as, as, as Stephen was described earlier in Acts chapter 6, he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. And as they attacked him and they stoned him to death, he gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God. And what a beautiful picture. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen was a mighty vessel of the Holy Spirit, my friends, who boldly spoke the truth. And in this moment of terror, you see the Holy Trinity there to comfort Stephen, to welcome him home. And he says, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing in the right hand of God. Here's what's amazing. Stephen just articulated the history of Scripture and pointing back to Jesus. And Stephen now captures a glimpse of Christ's glory as did Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. But of course, they ignored that. They cried, stopped their ears. They rushed towards him and they laid their garments at the feet of a man named Saul. That is Saul of Tarsus, who later become Paul the Apostle. So Jewish law didn't allow for executions to be done in Jerusalem. So the council grabbed Stephen, which is an act of mob violence, and they dragged him outside the city. Stoning, of course, was a punishment for blasphemy. And then ironic in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. So they crucified Jesus, and then they stoned Stephen for blasphemy. In describing the procedural manners of stoning, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible states, quote, if the mob here followed anything like the ideal procedure in some second century Jewish traditions, Stephen would be thrown from a height and those above would hurl large stones requiring both hands aiming for the chest, though precision was unlikely. The witness would strike first, Deuteronomy 17 verse 7. Saul, it seems here, later Paul the Apostle, as I mentioned earlier, gave the approval to have Stephen stoned to death. It is also uh, Luke's way of introducing Saul as he is about to become the main character of the rest of the book of Acts from Acts chapter 13 to chapter 28. So what a, what a horrible way to die. But in the midst of this horrific encounter that Stephen is undergoing, as he talked about all the oppression and the slavery, he wasn't a slave. The Trinity, the heavens are opened up in the Trinity is there to deliver Stephen. And then we're told in verse 59, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What did Jesus say to the Father? Receive my spirit. This is the first of two statements Stephen makes that are exactly what Jesus said on the cross in Luke, in, in Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Because on falling on his knees, verse 16, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen speaks the same words of forgiveness in his second statement as Jesus did on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. This is truly an act of grace and a sign of true love for your enemies. 
That's what we learn from Stephen in Acts chapter seven. Isn't that powerful? So as we end this podcast, my friends, I do pray, as I said earlier, that you're inspired, that you're convicted, that you're motivated. You, you hear me say that a lot in the podcast because, again, we are to stand strong in God's word. And when we do, we will be convicted. We will be inspired. We will be motivated to do even greater things that we ever thought was possible because we trust the Lord. Just like God used Abraham, just like God used Joseph, just like God used Moses, and here God uses Stephen. I pray that God would use you. So thank you guys for watching. Thank you for listening. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends.